the church, not a denomination, but the church is in liminal space. The church is not what it used to be, and it's not what it's going to be. And very few of us have the patience to wait for the Holy Spirit to lead us and to allow it to be what it can become. This modern world is of particular interest to women. Betwixt, at the intersection of faith and culture. Well, hi, friends. We're back for part two of the Betwixt podcast conversation with Suzanne Stabile on the Enneagram. In part one, we covered the nine Enneagram types and how knowing them can help us to navigate the path between us along the journey to healthy relationships. In today's episode, Suzanne Stabile and I continue our conversation on how the Enneagram can be a helpful tool for spiritual growth and transformation. So let's jump back in where we left off. One thing that we have in common that I don't know much about your relationship with Richard Rohr, but let me just tell you, I've been teaching liminality for about 15 years. Oh, good. (laughs) So you have lots to say. (laughs) Yes. Well, that's a concept that I work with a lot. Mm. And Richard Rohr has been a spiritual mentor for my husband and me for most of the last 30 years. So He taught me the Enneagram, and he encouraged me to study for five years before I started talking, which I don't really have the personality for, but he's Richard Rohr, so I did it, right? (laughs) So for the last eight or nine years, I've been teaching a lot more. I just am finishing my third three-year apprentice program. I've started a cohort program where people come for four weekends in a year, and we do Enneagram work, and I'm a unique Enneagram teacher in that I kind of do a lot of work around Enneagram and. So Mm. this last weekend I taught in the recovery community and I'm doing some new work in how to use the Enneagram in the recovery community along with 12 steps to help with maintaining sobriety, to help families understand difference and have some new solutions for communication. I've done some pretty significant work for the last four years on Enneagram and grieving. Okay. In that process, I've learned a a lot about grieving and a lot about how to apply the Enneagram to the prospect of learning how to grieve and then grieving in a healthy way. Hmm. And I do Enneagram and communication and Enneagram and, 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 and. So that's a, a little different than the way other people who have been teaching as long as I have use the Enneagram, but it's, it uses my gifts well. I'm kind of a synthesizer. Mm. I'm able to pull together different pieces of wisdom from different disciplines and use the Enneagram in understanding those. Mm-hmm. I love that you describe it as spiritual wisdom. It's yeah. not just a personality typing oh. system. I'm a little worried about it. I'm, I'm thankful that it's so popular right now, but I have some concerns about that too. Yeah. Uh, Talk Richard, a little bit about that. In his early books, Richard Rohr frequently talked about not wanting the Enneagram to end up being a parlor game. I sometimes refer to it as cocktail talk. I don't want the Enneagram to become water cooler or cocktail talk because it, it deserves more respect than that. Mm-hmm. It's age old wisdom that 
is, I think, mystical in nature when it's taught well, when people become students of the Enneagram and really learn to use it for what I think it's intended for, which is communication and for the good of all. Right now, everything is so tribal and we're so divided into camps around politics and religion and education and gender. And I just find it all to be so tiring. Hmm. And divided. there too, right? <laughs> yeah, a lot of it. And I have seven grandchildren and I will have eight by mid-August. And I don't want them to grow up in the world the way it is right now. I think there's a lot of anxiety kind of floating everywhere and landing on all of us and a lot of anger, misplaced usually, landing on all of us. And I I want to be part, just a little part, of an answer to some of that. Mm-hmm. And I, I think I am. Mm-hmm. I think you are too. Thank you. I know that um, that must be a source of tension to bring this to the people, but yet to relinquish that and, you know, to trust that somehow God will still continue to use it in people's lives, but to know it will become water cooler talk. And I think God uses everything. Mm -hmm. So maybe water cooler talk around the Enneagram ends up with little or no exchange of Enneagram wisdom, but at least an awareness that people see things differently. So how is the Enneagram an important tool for building those relationships? between people? Because a lot of the personality tests that I'm familiar with really highlight, you know, just your own personal strengths or weaknesses. But what I love about what you're doing, especially with the Enneagram, is that it seems to be an invitation for building not just your own health, but healthy relationships, that space between us. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. Phyllis Tickle was a friend of mine. and Yeah. What a woman. You know, she taught that there are now 39,000 distinctively different Protestant denominations worldwide. And I'm clear as a pastor's wife that those divisions were not around the Sermon on the Mount or the things that Jesus taught. Those divisions are around an inability to build relationships with people you disagree with. Mm-hmm. Then it ends up that there are fights about the color of the carpet in Fellowship Hall or whether or not we're going to receive communion by intinction or in cups or it is never about what it's about, I don't think. What it's about is everybody wants to belong and everybody wants their life to have meaning and everybody wants to be heard. We're culturally not getting better at that. In fact, we're still losing ground. Mm -hmm. So I thought if I could write a book that talked about nine ways of seeing, nine ways of receiving information, nine ways of processing information, then I thought maybe if I could begin with narrative form, these are the things you need to know about this number. And These are the things that if you're this number, you need to know about other people. Then I thought maybe we could get somewhere. I thought maybe that could be my contribution to a new kind of community that we could build based on inclusion instead of 
exclusion. Mm-hmm. And there are people, certainly critics of the Enneagram, who think it's reductive. But I actually think it's quite expansive. I've never taught the Enneagram to people who didn't have an aha moment about themselves or about other people. Mm-hmm. My mother was a five on the Enneagram, and my best friend since I was 18 is a five on the Enneagram. She and I have very different lives. She taught school in the same high school for all of her teaching career, 40-something years. She is not married and doesn't have children. I'm a two on the Enneagram, so I'm very effusive and handsy and relational, and she's an introverted five. The Enneagram has helped her to be more extroverted, and she's used it for that. But I love to tell this story about her because it... It helps people understand difference. Not too long ago, she said to me, I have to have knee surgery. I'm going to have knee surgery next Wednesday. And I said, well, no, you're not having knee surgery next Wednesday because I'm on the road next Wednesday. And if you're having knee surgery, I'm taking it. And she said, your schedule is just too full and my neighbor's going to take me. And I said, I don't even know your neighbor's name. Your neighbor's not taking you. I'm taking you. I'm your best friend. I'm taking you. <laughs> And she said, I don't need you to do that. And I said, well, I need to do it. So she finally gave in and Joe and I took her. She and I were at the hospital and Joe had gone on to the church and they gave her the shot before the shot that put you out. And she was a little woozy and she looked over at me. I was sitting in a chair by the bed and she looked over at me and said, I'm really so glad that you're here. And I'm so glad that you insisted on being here. And she was crying a little bit. And she said, it means a lot to me. And I got up to walk toward her because I was going to hug her. And she held up her hand and said, don't get carried away. (laughs) That is a two, five moment. That one story teaches so much. Yeah. It teaches so much about difference. And when we can understand how not to go too far with other people, then we can maintain relationships and that allows us to go deeper. That's wonderful. Yeah, that's so respectful. I think the Enneagram offers us that. You know, people in your position often ask me, what's dangerous about the Enneagram? Mm -hmm. Here's my answer. The Enneagram is only dangerous if you take it to be more than it is. It's just one spiritual wisdom tool. Mm -hmm. It's a really good one, but it's just one. Yeah. I actually think it's better when it's combined with others. Yeah. I'm married to a former Catholic priest who's had a spiritual director since he was 14 and who has been doing spiritual practices since he was 14. So needless to say, that's a big part of our life together. Mm. Centering prayer or contemplative prayer is what grounds me. And I do better Enneagram work because I do a daily sit. Nothing is the answer to everything. And the Enneagram is, I believe, a tool for inclusion because it explains difference rather than reductive. And I have been teaching it long enough that, frankly, I know I'm right. Yeah. (laughs) We'll give you that. (laughs) Okay. Good. Yeah. I first was introduced to the Enneagram in some coursework because I'm almost done one month away from getting certified in spiritual direction. Oh, congratulations. Thank My husband Joe teaches 
in the spiritual direction program at Perkins School of Theology. Wonderful. Yeah. And you know, you're going to like me because I show up everywhere and say, everybody needs a spiritual director and everybody needs a therapist. Yes. Okay. So I'm sorry. I that's great. Yes. Well, yeah. Congrats. Thank you. And I've loved learning about the Enneagram because I feel like it's been such an incredible tool to use when I'm in a spiritual direction relationship with someone else. I love how you put it. Just don't take it too seriously. It's one spiritual wisdom tool. Yeah. Just one. But in your circumstance, it will really benefit your directees that you know it. There are three centers of intelligence. And they're thinking, feeling, and doing, right? And we're all dominant in one. And one supports the dominant, but we're all repressed in one. And the spiritual practices that each of us need to do are practices that help us build our repressed center. Mm -hmm. But when left to our own, we choose practices that just fit our dominant center because that's where we're the most comfortable. Yes. That has been so helpful for me in my own spiritual journey, just to recognize, you know, I know, <laughs> I know what I'm good at and I would stick there forever. I'm sure. an investigator. I can learn and study and do all kinds of great head knowledge stuff, but that's not where I'm going to grow spiritually. Right. So it's really helpful for me to be known by others who can say, hey, you've been talking about a lot of heady stuff lately. <laughs> yeah. You know, have you gone on a walk lately? Have you noticed the blossoms are yeah. blooming yeah. outside? <laughs> you know, how are you feeling instead of how are you thinking? Those kinds of questions are very challenging for me. So I love that the Enneagram doesn't just give us a number and keep us in that box, but invites us to recognize where we are, who we are, what we've been given, and from there make some choices about, okay, well, what's what's a healthy path forward? One of the mantras I use uh, probably at least five times a day is, what is mine to do? Oh, that's a good one. <laughs> and I ask it over and over and over. Hmm. What is mine to do? Because not everything that comes my way is mine to do. That's so great. Yeah. Can we talk about the Enneagram and liminal space? Yeah, let's do. Yes. Well, tell me, how do you understand the concept of liminality? Joe and I, probably 15 years ago, maybe longer, had an appointment with Father Richard Rohr, and he talked to us about liminal space because we were in liminal space. Mm. He explained to us that liminal space is the threshold. It's when you're not where you were and when you're not where you're going. Mm. He also talked about it as being the most teachable space. And he ultimately turned that statement into perhaps it's the only teachable space. Okay. And during that time, it became clear to me that the church, not a denomination, but the church is in liminal space. The church is not what it used to be, and it's not what it's going to be, and very few of us have the patience to wait for the Holy Spirit to lead us and to allow it to be what it can become. I also learned from Father Roar that we have a tendency, if we're more conservative, to run back to the way things used to be. 
and if we're more liberal, which I would replace with progressive, to run ahead and create something new that hasn't been thought through and that may not be where we're led. Absolutely, yeah. So my understanding of liminality and of liminal space is that it's a place of waiting and allowing. And we live in a culture that doesn't teach, endorse, or encourage any of that. Mm -hmm. So I think it's a struggle to wait. And I think there are things we haven't learned yet. That could only happen in that space, right? Yes. Yeah. But there's something to be learned from the fact that we don't have to turn experience into doctrine and dogma so fast if we're allowed to ask questions about theology and religion and who God is and who we are in relationship to God. I think for a time we need to hold things a little more loosely so that we can allow ourselves to be led. Right. So I'm thankful for where I am. I'm becoming a, a little bit impatient with denominations that are so well-defined that you can't ask questions, you can't struggle, you can't. It's like the questions have been asked and here are the answers. That's what you're supposed to accept. And I, I can't do it. But I'm worried about people who have all the answers. I just think the questions are far more important than the answers, I guess I would say. I guess in my mind, I, I feel like the, the key word in liminal space is to be present, right. is to be in the place that we are, not so fixated on the past and not just so fixated on what we want to happen in the future, but just to be present and to right. be present to those around us. And, and I think within liminality, there is a degree of mutuality. Mm -hmm. You know, we've all had to strip off our status and <laughs> all yeah. these things. And we are equals. We're, we're family. And so how does the Enneagram help us in that space? I think that's a really great question, by the way. I think the Enneagram helps us create a third way hmm. because Enneagram wisdom is the understanding that not everybody sees what you see. And not everybody's having the experience that you're having. So we want to, to make the path toward transformation a little wider and a little less specific. Okay. And a little more inclusive. But not so inclusive that we stand for nothing. Uh-huh. And not lacking enough specifics to know who we are and where we stand. I think we have a wide path in Christianity, and I think we have a very narrow path. Hmm. And I think the third way is in between. That sounds so giving, liminal in itself. <laughs> it does, doesn't it? Yes. <laughs> giving ourselves, giving ourselves by being present to people who are different than we are encourages being present 
to people who are different than we are. Oh, that's beautiful. And if you think we're all the same, then you you don't give yourself to the difference in the person who's standing in front of you. Mm, right? Right. Here's what I think. I think before we know the Enneagram, we look for people who are like us and we find them. So we now are divided into tribes where we don't encounter people who don't agree with us. Mm-hmm. We all think the same and all that. And the Enneagram creates curiosity, which we lack culturally. And then you start to listen for, I wonder if this person is dependent or withdrawing or aggressive. Oh. I wonder if this person is a seven maybe or a nine. I wonder how they would see that as opposed to I'm right and you're wrong or you're right and I'm always wrong. You know, there's that too. Mm. So the Enneagram is non-duality at its best. Oh, wow. That's great. Leaves that space for growth and for change and shifting. You have to have some ground rules for that. Like one of the ground rules is you can never use your number as an excuse for your behavior. Right? Never. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) Um, You can never use somebody else's number to make fun of them or to be dismissive of other people. You can never guess numbers. People have to find out their number for themselves. Because yeah. your Enneagram number is determined by motivation and not by behavior. Yeah. Don't tell people what number you think they are because that robs them of the journey. Don't take the test or an indicator. Hear it taught orally or read narrative descriptions of the Enneagram. Or listen to your podcast. Or listen to my podcast. <laughs> <laughs> the Enneagram doesn't lend itself well to an elevator speech. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I have had corporations offer me a lot of money to teach the Enneagram the way I teach it in a half day instead of an eight hour day. Mm. And my answer is no, because it doesn't do us any good to have a system that offers us opportunities to grow in health and wisdom and grace. If we're not going to put in some time and an investment in the beginning to make sure we know what personality type we are. Mm-hmm. That's right. Why do that? Mm-hmm. So it's a commitment for people who want to study with me, but they come back for more. So I guess it's not bad. Yeah. But it's a journey though, isn't it? It is a journey. You know, it's okay to get your number wrong. and People do that a lot, don't they? Yeah, Yeah. they do. I tell people when I start an eight-hour day, at the end of each number, I'm going to ask you if you think that's you. And I'm okay if you raise your hand nine times because we all do the same things. Yeah. The question is, why do we do what we do? And the Enneagram teaches that. And Mm. that teaches us so much about one another. Oh, and that's so hard to get to. I mean, we have covered that over (laughs) in ourselves so well. I also say at the beginning of workshop that I can't guarantee that you'll know your number at the end. Most people usually do, but I can guarantee that you'll be more compassionate. Yeah. That's beautiful. It happens too. I love the journey of walking with people of discovery. You're going to be a really good spiritual director. I love it. And I love when they take a long time. My husband is a great example. He's not set on a number. He's been investigating a couple different numbers. And I think we both know where he is heading. But, you know, there's no rush to get there. He's learning lots of things. It's like excavation, isn't it? It is. Layer by layer, what am I learning here? You learn a lot on the journey. You learn a lot on the journey. 
about yourself and about other people. Yeah, I love that. What's your dream for how the Enneagram can be transformational for people and for communities? Um, well, my dream kind of changes depending on where I'm teaching. Ah. <laughs> if I'm teaching in a hospital setting or if I'm teaching hospital chaplains, then my dream is that medical care will be more personalized and more humane. Hmm. And that that will create for patients less fear and that the turnover rate in personnel will be lower because people have grace for one another because they understand difference. Hmm. My hope for chaplains in particular, I can spend a day with chaplains and they can leave my workshop knowing whether or not patients are withdrawing numbers or dependent numbers or aggressive numbers. Hmm. And then I can teach them how to handle each of those different stances so that people who are very sick and really struggling and get what they need from a chaplain because one size doesn't fit all, actually. That's great. If I'm on a college campus, my dream is that, you know, the best time to learn your Enneagram numbers when you're 20. Really? Because you've arrived to the place where you get to do what you want to do and make the decisions you want to make and do life the way you think it should be done. And and that's all personality, all of it. And the world takes some of that away from you. So um, that's the best time to learn your number. Mm. And when I'm on college campuses, my hope is that they will start their own Enneagram community that functions when I'm not there, and they usually do. And my dream for that, it's very specific in some ways and it's very philosophical in some ways. So specifically, my hope is that universities in housing will make room for fives who would find it very difficult to never have any space. So fives need a single room that's connected to a double room. Like if that can't be that hard. That's one example of 25. My philosophy around teaching on college campuses is that those young men and women will make fewer mistakes than I made mm-hmm. because I didn't learn the Enneagram until I was in my 30s. Mm. You know, we are born balanced in thinking, feeling, and doing, and whole, mm. and then we take on personality, which is Enneagram, trying to secure our place in our family or in the world or trying to make authority figures happy and trying to make sure that we're safe. We just add on layers that are not necessarily what we would have chosen to do. Okay. And that's personality. And when you get older, personality starts to kind of fall away. And you can have a journey back to who you were before you did anything wrong and before you did anything right. I think that if you learn the Enneagram when you're a young adult, you put on less personality. Interesting. And then you have less that you have to struggle with and wait to learn to allow it to fall away. Wow. So there is the potential, the younger you are when you learn it, to be more essence than personality. How do parents uh, navigate that? I mean, what are we doing well and not well as we engage our children with the Enneagram? <laughs> well, I've, I've refused, essentially, to teach Enneagram parenting because when I get to that, what parents want is for me to help them figure out the number of their children. And when I show up, I want to teach them how to be healthier parents in their number. 
So I've made a compromise with my oldest daughter and her husband and the culture. And my compromise is that with me overseeing it, they are creating any and parenting material that they're going to teach. Okay. The only children I teach the Enneagram to are adopted children. I teach in post-adoption services. Oh, that's wonderful. And the reason I teach the Enneagram there is because adopted children have a very difficult time being honest with their parents. Mm. Adopted parents. Your Enneagram number is mostly connected to genetic predisposition and then is formed by environment in different ways. Mm. By the time you're five, your Enneagram number is well honed. You see the world the way you're going to see it till you die. And you're the same Enneagram number all your life. So we use animals, though, instead of numbers. Okay. Children are able to hold animals much more loosely than numbers, as are their parents. So Joey, my daughter that's going to be teaching it, did the work to research animals and find animals that she would think are like each of the numbers as opposed to starting with the numbers and you know oh, so that's great um, i'll give you the list of animals real quick ones are worker bees and twos are kangaroos and threes are eagles and fours are butterflies and fives are owls and sixes are bunny rabbits and sevens are monkeys and eights are lions and nines are turtles that's great <laughs> It's amazing to watch children identify with one of those nine animals once you teach the behavior of the animal. What a privilege to love you, to teach you all that we know, to watch you build a collection of dreams that you can call So I think they're going to do a great job. I think they're going to come up with something that I'm happy with. Mm. They both have full-time jobs in education. My daughter's vice president of a Catholic high school, and my son-in-law works at the University of Texas at Dallas. I think they'll do a good job. And then I think people who are looking for parenting help with the Enneagram will get what they need from Joey and Billy. Okay. I don't think that's mine to do. All right. Well, that's something I think a lot of my friends who are parents will look forward to. And another question I hear a lot is, what about trauma in children? How does trauma inform or impact our Enneagram number? Traumatic experiences cause you to go deeper in your number, but they don't change your number. Okay. So that means you just have a a climb. You have to climb out of that deep place in your number to get to uh, unhealthy and then average and then healthy. Trauma causes excess in your number, regardless of age, but it Mm. doesn't change. And how you respond to trauma is actually informed by your personality. Okay. I think that's helpful for people to understand and a good indicator because I think we can sometimes spot the excess. Yeah. Suzanne, well, thank you for taking the time with me. I really enjoyed every minute and you're going to be a great spiritual director. So people make an appointment with you before it's too late. (laughs) Thank you. I love, I love spiritual direction. It is a joy in my life. Any final thoughts about liminality and the Enneagram that you want to leave with us? I think the Enneagram at its best when taught well helps us to know who we are, who we are in relation to other people and who we are in relation to God. 
And I don't think we're going to be able to accommodate liminal space without understanding that God is God and we are not, without understanding that our way of seeing the world is not only different from how God sees the world, but it's different from how other people see the world. Hmm. We can collectively move from liminal space and be better if we move at the right time. Mm. But I don't think we can share the threshold in peace unless we can understand, accept, and value difference. Oh, that's so beautiful. Thank you. You're so welcome. Well, I have really enjoyed chatting with you and um, your books and your podcast just on a personal level have been so helpful for me. I enjoyed it so much. Thank you for having me. I hope I get to hug your neck someday. Oh, I would love that. Yeah. (laughs) Travis Monk, Thomas Merton, once said, What can we gain by sailing to the moon if we're not able to cross the abyss that separates us from ourselves? Some of you have listened to Suzanne describe the nine Enneagram types, and you have felt like you are standing at the edge of the abyss. And some of you have found resonance with something she said, and others have discovered that you're actually not the type that you thought you were, especially if you were relying on the results of a test. And I've even heard from some of you who have felt like you've opened Pandora's box and entered a bit of an existential crisis. So let me affirm that all of this is good news. It reveals that you're on a journey of self-discovery. And as John Calvin said, without knowledge of self, there is no knowledge of God. What I appreciate about the Enneagram is that the journey of self-knowledge is not about bolstering the ego, but rather it serves as a tool to help us gain freedom from our personality and ego. It beckons us to notice our motivations, our longings, fears, our compulsions, and to empty ourselves. And for Christians, I think it's a helpful formation tool that aids us along the path to becoming more like Christ. I like the way Suzanne describes the Enneagram as just one spiritual wisdom tool, one that works best when used with other tools. So listen, the Enneagram isn't magic. Knowing your number, it might enlighten you, but it won't offer you spiritual transformation unless you engage the spirit through whom transformation is given. So the Enneagram may not transform us in and of itself, but it does lead us to the edge and it bids us to cross the abyss that separates us from more fully knowing ourselves, others, and God. It helps us to see difference. It draws our eyes up from our navels and into the eyes of others, asking us to behold them with wonder and compassion. And the Enneagram reveals our blind spots, our idols, the planks in our eye, It draws us into more meaningful and vulnerable ways of being present with God and opening ourselves up to His presence and His work of renewal in our lives. And in this, we walk with Him along the path to life and flourishing. So if you find yourself standing at the edge of the abyss that separates you from yourself, from others, or from God, then my hope is that you will recognize this liminal space as an invitation an invitation to let go of the image that you've made for yourself along with the habits formed out of fear, shame, or pain. An invitation to follow the Spirit in leading you towards healing, wholeness, and transformation.
I hope you'll check out Suzanne Stabile's new book, The Path Between Us, and the accompanying workbook, which is really great because it provides some exercises that you can do within a community. And I hope that you'll seek out a spiritual director or someone who can walk this path with you. And if you need help finding someone, send me a note at betwixpodcast.com or on the Betwix Podcast Facebook page, and I'll be happy to point you towards some resources. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Betwixt Podcast. You can find more Betwixt episodes and view our show notes at betwixtpodcast.com or you can visit my partners at missioalliance.org. Missio Alliance is resourcing a church reimagined for a world recreated. Thank you to everyone who has subscribed and given Betwixt a positive review on iTunes or Google Play. If you haven't done that yet, please consider taking a minute to help me out. This really is the fuel of podcast, and it makes a big difference. Hey, it has been a real pleasure to produce this podcast for you. Thank you for holding liminal space with me today. Catch you next time. Hi.